Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History as a publicly available podcast. I am your ever-tested Professor Hamby, along with my ever... Uh, what are you ever today? Still suffering. Still suffering. T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. You can find all of the social media links and stuff on the show notes. And if I seem a little discombobulated, this is because it is the second time restarting this. Once, because my TA kept muttering about a video game into the mic. And once, because some math professor went into the quad at the wrong time and gave the wolves a meal. Oh, well, I guess that's a division problem he couldn't solve. Mm-hmm. Um... Although the wolves had a solution. <laughs> mm-hmm. And judging from what's left for uh, the uh, sanitation crew, there was a remainder left over. So, uh, yeah. But we're going to talk about the murder of prostitutes today instead of math professors. Is it really murder when it's a wild? Well, they're technically domesticated, sort of. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about From Hell today. And this is chapter 9, the chapter entitled From Hell, and has the infamous From Hell letter featured in it. In fact, this chapter just has a ton of content, period. So I'm going to have to skip over some stuff in order to keep us in a reasonable time frame. I do want to note that I think I previously mentioned the Dear Boss letter as the From Hell letter, and that was just my brain crossing wires. I apologize to people for that. Uh, these are the two most famous letters in the R- Ripperology, the Dear Boss and the From Hell letter. The Dear Boss letter is the one that was written in red ink that claimed to be blood that Penn created the name Jack the Ripper and was almost certainly fake. Mm-hmm. The Dear Boss letter, or sorry, the From Hell letter, there's quite a bit more debate about where it came from. And some people believe is legitimate. Now, it should be noted, these are not the only two letters. Actually, uh, newspapers and other entities were flooded with letters from people purporting to be Jack the Ripper. Most of them absolute fake. And, of course, it is always a topic of discussion among Ripperologists of could some of the other letters have been genuine. Mm -hmm. And a lot of legitimate attention was devoted to them. People really tried to figure out if they could have been. So, unknown. This chapter opens up with some quotes. I'm going to read two of them because they're of particular import, and we'll see why pretty early in the chapter. The first one is from the Confessions of Aleister Crowley. Now, you've heard of Aleister Crowley before. Mm -hmm. When you hear Aleister Crowley, what do you think? I think crazy magic cult man. Right. Now, one of the interesting things about Aleister Crowley is he did live in the late Victorian era. Uh, He was about 26 when the 20th century started, and he lived until, I want to say 46, 47, somewhere in there. Sounds about right. And as a result of coming in a time when uh, printing was readily available, he has a lot of writings available. And he certainly had this very Rasputin-y... Ooh, I'm spooky, public persona. Mm-hmm. I am the dark wizard, Alistair Crowley. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if you read his writings, he's pretty self-effacing a lot of the time. 
He makes fun of himself frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and makes fun of that persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often wonder what he would have really been like in person. I also um, wonder how much of it was an act. Well, I mean, based on his writings and the fact that he makes so much fun of that act, mm-hmm. he clearly is wasn't really even trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. He was kind of throwing the act out there like, hey, if you want to be super uptight and believe that I'm really like, you know, the mortal incarnation of Satan, have at it. Meanwhile, the rest of us are going to get drunk and party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and there's no doubt that there was a sort of anti-Victorian vibe to his so-called ritual magic. And that... I, I'm not really sure, and I've never really studied Crowley. I've read excerpts from some of his writings, uh, which is why I know some of this. I don't know how much of this was symbolic or metaphoric for him, uh, but certainly there was an anti-Victorian vibe or element to his philosophies that was about, let's all get drunk and have an origin. Um... And whether it it was a part of their rituals and whether they thought they were actually making magic or it was just an excuse for that kind of party, I don't know. And the next quote is from, oh, I didn't actually read the quote yet. Let me read it. Uh, This is from the Confessions of Aleister Crowley, edited by John Simmons and Kenneth Grant. At this time, London was agog with the exploits of Jack the Ripper. One theory of the motive of the murderer was that he was performing an operation to obtain the supreme black magical power. And that'll become relevant in a minute. The next quote is from The Magical Revival by Kenneth Grant, who edited the previous book we just read from. This quote is, Blood is the great materializing agent, both for spirits that would incarnate in this world or on this plane, and for spirits which, remaining in another world, wish to assume a shape in order... It it says, in order impress. I think that should be in order to impress their presence upon human beings. Now, uh, we talked a little bit about these before, and you said that before I brought it up in this context, you'd never heard of Kenneth Grant, right? Yeah. Well, he certainly wasn't the huge public persona that Aleister Crowley was, but he was actually considered by many, if not most people, to be the heir apparent to Aleister Crowley's traditions. Hmm. And with Crowley's blessing, had a temple in London. Now, the organization that Crowley left behind actually denounced Grant after he began incorporating more stuff into his new sort of offshoot magical tradition, uh, including aspects of Hinduism, tantric sex, uh, Jewish mysticism, Kabbalism, all kinds of things. I mean, basically, he looked at the world and went, I like that, and I like that, and I like that, and it it was a buffet of mysticism and philosophy. And honestly, there are probably worse ways to go about life. But even though he was essentially excommunicated, from the order, he just kept running his temple the way he wanted until he passed away and didn't give a damn. (laughs) Fair. Yep. So, let's jump right into the story. Hold on, I need to correct something computer-wise here because it's not happy with me. Okay. Like I said, there's a lot of content here, so some things we'll have to uh, treat in pretty short shrift. We open the story with a salesman selling these 
carved walking sticks with the head of a monk. And he's right outside Mitre Square where the last murder happened, around the corner from Dr. Gold's house. And he's telling this story about how centuries ago at this very spot there was a mad monk and murders and the monk's ghost still haunts and the ghost may have killed this woman or led the Jack the Ripper here or whatever. And this isn't just amusing, this is actually history too. Mm-hmm. Now these sticks were obviously not carved in the last few hours since the murder in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and the newspapers reported on this guy here and presumably he went around doing this sort of shtick wherever he could potentially sell the sticks. Uh, Not necessarily even murders, you know, but something big happens and people may want a memento, so he makes up a story and start appropriate to the sticks and start selling them, which I think is hilarious. Dude's hustling. And of course, uh, uh, following the money, there was a financial motivation to what built up the fame of Jack the Ripper. I mean, the newspapers were getting rich off this, Mm -hmm. so it's not surprising other people saw opportunities for money also. And we see this mob out here with people having their pictures taken and all this kind of stuff. Uh, because, I mean, frankly, the Victorians were a morbid bunch of sons of bitches. Mm-hmm. They, they loved things that were dark and, by today's standards, absolutely ghoulish. In fact, I've become fairly famous for it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as Aberline is standing here in this crowd... This young boy walks up who identifies himself as Alexander. And Alexander says he's about 14 and basically asks, Does, is Jack the Ripper using magic? And Aberline goes, Magic? Who talk, what are you talking about? And the kid's like, I read a letter in the newspaper. It said the man was killing ladies in a special pattern that would make him magic. Magic and invisible. <laughs> Aberline looks at him and goes, Oh, bloody hell. Not another one. Listen. It's all a pile of bollocks. There's no such thing as magic. No such bloody thing, all right? The kid just looks at him and goes, You're wrong. Goodbye. What's in that candy cane? Uh, opium. That, that would explain it. Now, Alexander was the real name of Aleister Crowley, who would have been about 14 at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's no evidence that uh, Aleister Crowley uh, ever went to visit one of the scenes, or ever, certainly not that he ever met Aberline. Although it's not impossible to think, given what a public spectacle these were, that a young Aleister Crowley, uh, before he adopted the name Aleister and was still known as Alexander, might have visited one of the scenes of the crime. It's perfectly plausible. Mm-hmm. Certainly many in London did. And of course, there is magic at play, at least on Gold's part. Uh, we had a whole... He says there's a pattern being formed to invoke magic. We had a whole chapter of Gold having Netley drive him around to follow that pattern. And of course, some of the girls are being transported to places uh, that are important for the crime in Gold's mind. And then we move on to the autopsy. Now, this, despite being black and white with simple lines, is a pretty gruesome scene, in my opinion. Uh, The nude body is laid out very unceremoniously and being investigated by the doctors. And 
I don't think there's anything... Well, there's very few things creepier than seeing somebody laid out so mechanically and so naked. And I don't mean naked in the sense of not having clothes on, but exposed on every level. There's no concept of privacy or decency. It's just a bag of flesh left behind for the autopsy. And it's one of the reasons why in the real world, of course, when they uh, create movies and stuff, there's this effort usually in movies and shows to have people doing autopsies to have these very kind personalities. Uh, They're usually not... If you've ever noticed in TV shows and movies with autopsies, the coroners are usually really nice people. And it's to deflect how creepy the process is. There's no deflection of that here. Mm -hmm. None. And we get intersected with these doctors performing the autopsy on the woman the scenes of Gull cutting her open. And Aberline writes on his pad, Doctor, question mark, because Moore has gone with the idea that it was somebody of considerable medical skill who did this, and the doctors agree. In actual history, there's debate about that. Yeah, I don't think it's true, personally. Yeah. And all we have to base it on is some notes left behind that there is reason to consider them suspect. The storyline moves on. We see a bunch of stuff uh, until Gull visits the Queen. And the Queen basically says, what's going on? I mean, this is bad. You know, we're, we're having people talking about how the British Empire can't protect itself. And he says... Well, this is a warning. This is for the security of the British Empire. And she says, a warning? To whom? And he says, to certain enemies of Freemasonry, your majesty, the scourge of Illuminism. And here he's referring to uh, Illuminism being an offshoot of Freemasonry, a new mystic tradition that's come up recently. And... He and it's called the Golden Dawn, and he basically equates Freemasonry with England, with the social elite being Freemasons, and considers them one in the same. And when she asks for some sort of confirmation of this, he basically says, "Well, you know, the last place that this sort of stuff popped up was France." Right before the revolution. So basically he's saying, Hey, Vicky, baby, I know you got this whole British Empire to take care of, but I'm taking care of you. I'm keeping your head and your shoulders. There won't be no guillotine around here so long as you got, that's right, Dr. Gold taking care of you. I'll kill some whores and that'll keep the bad magicians away. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> but kind of wonderful too so he leaves the queen's chambers and he runs into Robert Lees Uh, Robert Lees is this foppish guy who we have not seen since the prologue when he was with Aberline on the seashore 
in the 20th century. And he is that supposed mystic. And he did that thing on the seashore in the prologue where he did the fake seizures and all that stuff. And uh, we talked a little bit about it then, but just to remind you, he was an actual mystic. And here he's purported to be this close contact with the queen, which he did claim to have and be. However, the reality is that there's no evidence he ever met the queen. Certainly no evidence of any form of patronage. Um, all, in fact, the only record of him in the queen's papers and her secretaries kept immaculate notes of bloody near every meeting she was ever in. The only record is that he sent a copy of a book and her office, not she herself, sent back a thank you note. And he offered to come do things that there's no record of the Queen ever taking him up on. You know, hold seances and that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, Gold decides to go visit the British Museum, which forever in my mind will be entombed by a Reddit question where somebody says, what is something you think is associated with a nation but has nothing actually associated with that nation in it? And somebody said... The British Museum, <laughs> which it which is not entirely true. It does have British things in it, but it also has historically been dominated with essentially the cultural history of lands that they conquered and added to the British Empire. And he's going through, he's looking at the Egyptian exhibits, he's eating grapes as he walks, um, the same kinds of grapes that he covers with laudlum and gives to the girls. Now... And, and he runs into a proprietor, basically browbeats the proprietor about something, and then wanders over to the Egyptian room where he runs into William Yeats. Now, William Yeats is a well-known English poet of the time, uh, and more than poet, he actually did a lot of different things. Uh, many of these were so-called Renaissance men that did not specialize. But Yeats was also involved in counter-mystic traditions to Freemasonry. And they basically have a little verbal sparring match where Gull all but slaps him. And, and I mean, I'm talking about, like, you know, a Will Smith slap here. You know, not a manly slap, but a you're-my-bitch slap. And, I mean, look look in the middle panel here. This yeah. This Eddie Campbell art of this dead stare in this slight evil grin that Gold gives Yates. It's terrifying. It is. It's brilliant art. But, I mean, you look at that and you're like, this motherfucker is psycho. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, at the bottom of the page, we get this illustration. Now, tell me what you think of this illustration. Oh, geez. That's gorgeous. Um, it's creepy, isn't it? Yeah. Now, this is not Eddie Campbell art. Mm. This is art from William Blake. That makes sense because it doesn't match with the rest of the panel, but still flows in naturally. Now, we've mentioned William Blake before because he came up during the chapter when Netley drove Goal around London. Mm -hmm. William Blake was a British poet and author as well as artist. He was interested in mysticism. Some people mocked him because he claimed to have visions, and knowing that would make him a target for derision, he only told a few people about it. 
Um, one of whom was the person who actually commissioned this piece because he was also a visual artist. Now, this was part of a series of very small pieces he did that were just a few centimeters by centimeters. I mean, they were like this big. Mm. All that details in this tiny wood block about this big. That's amazing. And more. That's actually a section of it. There's more to the picture. And and then they were coated with gold leaf and things like that. Hmm. But this is a, a, a figure called the Flea. And he is licking the last drops of blood out of a bowl. And the Flea figure is humanoid, but both demonic and reptilian. I was to say, it looks like a modern interpretation of a demon. Right. Well, we can trace some of those ideas back to the Victorian age. Mm-hmm. And pre-Victorian. But think about what was said earlier. Blood is for the transformation of spirits. You know, goal is reaching through the metaphoric spirit plane with blood and bringing things together. And I, I'm not going to go into it here in depth. But if you choose to go and read this exchange with Yeats, there's a reason this image comes immediately after. But that can go down a much longer road, and we need to move on, because there's a ton of content in this chapter. Netley's not happy, and now we're going to get to some of that graphic part that I mentioned. Mary Kelly is laying in bed uh, without any pants on. She's trying to get interest from her boyfriend, He's upset and walks out. He doesn't understand why she's so depressed and why she's drinking so much. Of course, she believes that she's going to be murdered soon. Mm -hmm. And she's distraught and basically ready to die. Now we flip back to Prince Albert, who's having a conversation with another fellow. And it becomes clear that he knows that something's going on and he can associate what happened with him in Whitechapel and his bride with the murders. He somehow has gotten clued into this. So, you know, his male friend decides to take his mind off it by giving him a blowjob. Hmm. Take my mind off it, I guess. Um, Then we go on with the coroner's inquest, the digging of the grave... And now we come to something that I find kind of brilliant. Uh, Now, there are many things that you can do the same in prose and graphic literature, but they're different. I mean, for example, with graphic literature, you can visually provide a scene, whereas in uh, prose literature, you can only describe it. However, you can describe it in ways that you can't show it, but you can show things in ways you can't describe them. But here's one thing graphic literature is especially good at as a trick. Not showing you something and not pointing it out. Now, I've previously referred to the woman Emma that Aberline meets with as Mary Kelly. Because I wanted to go ahead and let people know it. But in fact, if you pay attention both to this scene and the previous time she appeared, we're never actually shown her face. (laughs) For this to be done in prose... You would have to verbally say at some point, oh, and you're never shown her face, which would make no sense because Aberline does see her face. But in a graphic work, she can be turned away from the viewer. Mm -hmm. Now, 
This is because Moore didn't want us to know it was Mary Kelly right away. She is meeting up with Aberline, and he gives her the money. He gives her five pounds, which in today's money would be around 500 pounds. Jesus. And it's a significant amount of money. And he gives her the money, and she gives him a kiss. And he's basically making plans to later hook up with her. He's really infatuated with her. And this is a lot of money to give her. He goes back to the office. And I think last episode I mentioned the whole thing in the newspapers about the dogs tracking Jack the Ripper and it being a debacle when the poli- mm-hmm. when the uh, superintendent went to do it. Well, here they actually show, uh, redrawn by Eddie Campbell, some of those pictures that were posted in the newspapers. Yeah, the newspapers went for the police's throat. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And now we see the first meeting of Aberline and Robert Lee. Robert Lee shows up to the police station to say, I can help you find Jack the Ripper. I don't know why I'm doing a deep voice. He looks like a complete fop. Hi, I can help you find Jack the Ripper. Wow, that was a little chip monkey. Um, and Aberline just basically is like, this is bullshit. Get lost. Mm-hmm. And there, by the way, historically, we know that Robert Lee did, in fact, attempt to uh, help the police find Jack the Ripper. And he described himself in stories as being a critical part of the investigation. Amusingly, American newspapers picked this up and republished it, that he was a major part of the investigation. Um, this was not published in British newspapers because he wasn't. <laughs> Just to give you an idea how disconnected America was to the murders at the time. Well, this wasn't exactly the age of the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, it still took a boat trip to get information across mm-hmm. the waters. As the story goes on, Aberline continues to do his due diligence. Netley is depressed because he didn't really understand what he was signing up for. Netley is not that bright a soul. Uh, he's talking to Gull. Gull takes part of the kidney he cut out of the last victim and has Netley, because he's afraid somebody would notice uh, his own handwriting, Gull's handwriting, has Netley write a letter for him to the head of a local sort of uh, citizen's uh, neighborhood watch committee. That's not what it was called, but for modern context, uh, it's about the same thing. The idea of the citizen's help watch their own community uh, because they can't trust the police to do a good enough job. Now, Netley, as we noticed in the chapter when he drove Gull around, says he can read street signs, but that's about it. He's not very good at writing. And Gull's like, oh, that's good enough. And, in fact, the From Hell letter uh, is well known for lots of misspellings, very poor penmanship, and this half-kidney. Now, the guy who received it kept that half kidney on a desk until at some point much later on it was disposed of which is kind of a shame uh nobody's really sure because it was chopped up and mangled and only part if it was human kidney or maybe a pig kidney some people think it may have been a hoax from a medical student uh but if it had been kept we could do tests on it now to determine if it was human or not so we'll never know Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what happened to it other than uh, somebody thinks it was thrown away, which does seem likely. 
So the kidneys received, Aberline's brought in, they read this just horribly composed letter that's very difficult to read, and it starts with Dear Boss. And this is the one that there's the most contention about whether it is real or not. Now we go back to Mary Kelly, and Mary Kelly is sort of hanging out at her place and has brought a female friend home to see her common-law husband. And the two girls get undressed and get into bed and start playing together and invite him to join. Now, some interesting historical context here for those interested in LGBTQ issues, uh, because I believe this episode's going to post in June. If not, it's right before June. And England is fairly famous, historically, for not only having homosexuality be illegal, but it actually being punishable by death. <laughs> and it's been highly contentious, especially when some people who've been critical to things like British war efforts were secretly gay. <laughs> uh, however, that only applied to male homosexuality. There was nothing illegal at all about female homosexuality. <laughs> and there are various contentions about this, humorous as other, or otherwise, uh, but one theory that's held uh, that w I was told about, and I think it's probably true, is that, and, and I believe there was even discussion in Parliament to this effect, that they didn't want to outlaw female homosexuality because they didn't believe women could figure it out on their own, and they didn't want to let them know it existed as an option. Because why would we be with men if we were given another option? <laughs> yeah, 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 that might be true. I can think some of us have something to offer. Hmm. So uh, he gets pissed off and leaves because he doesn't feel like his and her problems are going to be solved with a threesome. And he's probably right about that. Mm -hmm. And she stays there with her. Now, we do know historically, by the way, that Mary Kelly on this evening, had a female friend over who stayed with them. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't know if anything physical or sexual happened. That is not in the history books. But we do know there was a female friend there who shared her bed. Mm -hmm. And we know that they had a broken window. And in the story, somebody reaches through the window, Gull, uh, or Netley, and steals the key that they can reach from inside the window so they can't properly lock the door. And again, this has led to many different theories about what happened in the historical studies of Ripperology. Meanwhile, Gull is visiting Prince Albert. Now, there has been a lot of overstatement about how involved Gull was with the royal family, but we do know that he treated the actual Prince Albert at some point and received a royal peerage of some kind. I don't think he got a title but he was given the ability to refer to himself as like the royal physician or something like that. And an annual payment from the crown for being a royal physician. This has been somehow adjusted to believe that, you know, he somehow had this super close association with the family. There were a number of physicians that were quote unquote royal physicians. But aside from treating Prince Albert when he was really ill one time, along with several other doctors and Albert made a strong recovery from, which was years before this, 
we don't know if he had any ongoing, you know, association with the royal family. <laughs> As the story goes on, uh, Aberline meets up with Emma again and actually gives her the money. So she has the money. She's excited about that. She goes back home and finds, you know, the girls in bed. Uh, uh, her friend and another one. Fun is had. That's all I'll say. I do upload this podcast. I, I, I'm trying to be gentle for people and not be really explicit. There's explicit content in here. There's a reason I upload this podcast as for 18 plus, folks. But it is oriented at college age, which is 18 plus. Then as the story goes on, we see Prince Albert actually try to warn people. So he is so appalled at what's going on and apparently getting head did not, you know, adequately soothe his feelings that he Shocker. actually sneaks out into Whitechapel and tries to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And we also see the chief inspector hit the point where he's like, you know what? I think I'm just going to retire. I'm done with this. This is all foobar and I don't want my name with it anymore. And who can blame him for that? story goes on. We have several pages with very little dialogue as Netley drives Gull to Miller's Court where Mary Kelly is living so that he can do the deed. And that is where we will pick up in the next chapter. However, there are a few things I want to note here. Mm -hmm. One is... Aberline gets upset because Emma disappears. We're going to talk about that more next chapter. And something kind of sneaky that Alan Moore does here that is definitely his own invention. But you'll have to tune back in next time for that. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts about this chapter? No. Any thoughts at all? No. Okay, so you're an average college student. Yeah. All right. Well, keep reading comics, folks, and we'll catch you next time for the final murder. Bum, bum, bum. Bum.